welcome back to another episode of Bite Sized Gaming. I'm your host, Mike, with my co-host, John. How's it going? And today we have a special guest here with us tonight. Um, we talked a little bit about him last week, but here we have Steven with us. Hello. Steven, how's it going? I'm doing pretty good. How are y'all doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. So I got to talk to you a little bit this last week, um, and as some of our viewers or listeners might know, um, Steven is another fellow Hollow Knight enthusiast himself, mm-hmm. but... I did promise that we talked less about Hollow Knight, and he did say that he's been playing other games. So let's just dive right in. What have you been playing recently, Steven? So the main game I've been playing lately, I've picked up Xenoverse Chronicles Definitive Edition on the Switch. Nice. If you don't know, Xenoverse Chronicles was a game initially released on the Nintendo Wii, but it's gotten its remastered edition. and We'll say the UI, 100% better from what I've seen. You can actually like see the screen and what you're fighting, <laughs> which is nice. But I've run about five chapters into the game, and I'm loving it so far. Five chapters, about how many hours is that, if you had to uh, estimate? I would say put in about five hours, but I'm also addicted to side quests. Yeah. So I will do every single side quest I come across, which means Skyrim is like a 3,000 hour game or something like that. I've lost track. I know, I know how that goes. Um, so what kind of drove your interest to get back into uh, Xenoblade? So I've actually, I never played the series at oh, all before. Okay. I just, I knew it was a release on the Wii initially. But what got me into it is, uh, I saw the character in Smash, which Smash is the greatest advertising platform there is. <laughs> yep. But I saw Shulk, and then now with Pyra and Mithra, which are from Xenoblade Chronicles, the, I think it's Xenoblade Chronicles X, which is the sequel. Uh, I thought, why not get into the game? It looks interesting. It's a third-person action RPG, which are the kinds of games I'm, typically drawn toward so with the xenoblade it just had like a really cool setting that it looked like and i've heard a lot of good things about the game so i decided to hop on it okay do you have any plans of moving on to try out uh xenoblade chronicles 2 or maybe even x i think they're the same game i remember oh they're not oh i thought they were the same thing so x came out on the wii u i believe if i researched correctly and i did play a little bit of that one but can't remember if it's a prequel or a sequel, but I know Xenoblade Chronicles 2 is a direct sequel to the first one, okay. where it has, uh, is Pyra in the first game? Uh, not that I've encountered yet, Okay, but I couldn't tell you. I've actually played a lot of the second game, and some of the X, but I've never, I've never went and played the first game, so you've got a leg up on me in that department. But I do know that X and 2 are not the same game. Okay, I thought, I didn't know there was a 2, I thought 2 was just called the X. Nope. Yeah, X was the one that came out after the first one on the Wii or Wii U. I can't remember which platform that was on. And then 2 was the inaugural one that they brought out on the Switch. Okay, yeah, and after I finish, I might try and get those once I get the ability to. Uh, I'm not too sure what my next game is going to be after uh, after I finish Chronicles. Okay. Uh, before we get too much further, just so those of you watching on YouTube or those of you listening on our podcast, yes, we are on most major podcast platforms. Um, I do know we hit Spotify and a few other ones, Google Podcasts. Um, iTunes, it's going to be there eventually. It just takes a little bit of time to go up, jump through Apple Toots, but it will be there eventually. Anyway, for those of you listening to this or watching this episode, we are recording this episode in front of a live Discord audience. Um, for those of you listening on Discord, um, welcome and thank you for hopping in to listen to us. Um, if you stick around to the end, we do have a question segment planned at the end for you guys to ask us any question that you desire we would hope and ask that you keep those questions related to the general video game world um but that will be coming up at the end of this current episode um so john 
Speaking of Xenoblade Chronicles, do you have any experience in that department? I have actually never played any of the Xenoblade games. Okay. Alright. I I never owned a Wii, never owned a Wii U, so it was kind of hard. Uh, are you into like the JRPG genre at all? Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. What are some notable JRPGs that you've played? Well, um... Doesn't even have to be notable. I guess just any JRPG that you have played or enjoyed. Final Fantasy count? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big I'm a big Final Fantasy person. Okay. So, uh, so were you on the Final Fantasy bandwagon, like in the current generation stuff, or were you playing way back with Final Fantasy, like the original Final Fantasy Seven? Or so, that? so Final Fantasy Seven on the original PlayStation was actually one of the first PlayStation games I ever owned. Okay, I, I can dig that. It's a good one to own. Uh, so, hopping back to Steven for a second here, um, do you have any prior history to JRPGs outside of Xenoblade? Would Pokemon be considered a JRPG? You know, to be completely honest, I would actually say yes. I think it would. Yeah. Because, like, there might be some haters out there that will rip me a new one for saying that, <laughs> but I personally would say yes, because it has a lot of similar elements to it. Yeah. Yeah, so, Pokemon, I've never really touched Final Fantasy... Um, if you consider Pokemon one, then I guess that would be it. In the same way, considering like the Pokemon anime, like playing it not knowing it's or watching it not knowing it's an anime, playing it not knowing it's a JRPG. Yeah, that same kind, that same kind of feel. Um, so Pokemon is your main history. Now you've been playing Xenoblade Chronicles, which is more in line with what your traditional JRPG might look like. Uh, what are your thoughts on the genre as a whole? So I've noticed. A split in the genre of what I've observed: the turn-based combat sort of JRPGs and the like, the real-time combat, kind of like your Xenoblade versus Pokemon. Yeah, it. I much prefer the live combat aspect of Xenoblade over like your turn-based RPGs, and that's typically where, if I can find more like Xenoblade, I'll definitely hop on those because that's my style of gameplay. Which is really interesting that that split is there. Because the original Final Fantasy VII was the turn-based combat. Mm -hmm. And then the recent remake of it, it is no longer the turn-based combat. It is now the real-time combat. Interesting. But one thing I did like is that they kept the option of making it turn-based in the remake for those hardcore or diehard OG fans of the game. But your comments on real-time versus turn-based is an interesting setup for what I was actually going to talk about. I did not play this, I swear. Um, I've been playing over the last week. I've been getting back into Octopath Traveler again. Um, Octopath Traveler kind of is Square Enix's attempt at going back to that 16-bit turn-based JRPG-style format. But I think what they did do with the game is as opposed to taking what, you know, the original Final Fantasy games were in turn-based combat or even original JRPGs in turn-based combat and carbon copy it, they took the art style and they took a lot of the job-based mechanics, but they added some modern elements to make it feel a bit more action-y without being real-time combat. Uh, it's a game that kind of came out of left field for me, and when it came out, I thought it looked weird, but I decided to give it a shot, and I loved it from the second I tried it. Um, like I said, it is that old-school like turn-based combat, 
but there are a lot of elements that kind of modernize the formula. So similar to Pokemon, in Octopath Travel you've got strength or weaknesses of your enemies. So they're weak, you know, some enemies are weak to sword, some enemies are weak to axe, things like that. But unlike Pokemon, as opposed to just taking a blanket, you know, double double damage or anything like that, the whole combat uh, system of the game is built around breaking your opponent. So your opponents will have a shield meter of like five or seven or whatever it might be, and once that shield meter hits zero, they break and they're stunned for a turn or two. So you utilize their weakness to take that shield down to zero to break them, and then when they're broken is when they take that double damage. Okay. So it's a very interesting mechanic, and they also added a few other things like boosting, where you know typical turn-based combat, even in Pokemon, you do one thing, and then that one thing is your turn. Where with this, they have that in there, but each turn in combat, you get a boost point up to a maximum of five. And so at any point, you can use up to four boost points to either do extra attacks or to boost your um, special abilities in power. So that kind of give and take of what's supposed to be turn-based combat gives it a very fun and strategic feel in what a lot of people view as an outdated uh, genre of game. That sounds pretty interesting. Yeah. Well, I have to uh, check that game. Yeah, it's a game I brought to the table knowing full well that it's probably one that not a lot of people have played because it, it, it kind of has that weird look. You said it's by Square Enix? Yes. I believe. Don't quote me on that, but I believe it is Square Enix. Um, and speaking of Square Enix, I, uh, in the same vein as Octopath, they introduced that new game coming out to the Switch, I think this summer or maybe fall, called Triangle Strategy. Did you guys catch that at one of the last directs? I didn't see yep. that one. So the Triangle Strategy, similar to like how Octopath was a throwback to the old JRPG, the Triangle Strategy, which is a horrible name. I'll give it that. It's a horrible <laughs> name. But it's it takes that 16-bit art, and by the way, if I haven't said it yet, Octopath Traveler has some of the most beautiful 16-bit graphics you've seen. What they do is they took like 16-bit character sprites, but added in a more like HD and moving background overworld. So it's a really cool blend That's of old school and new school together. They took that same art style into Triangle Strategy, but instead of being a throwback to JRPG, it's a throwback to the old school ta- like top-down tactics games, like your Final Fantasy tactics or even Fire Emblem to a certain extent. Um, I did play the demo for Triangle Strategy, and it, it seems pretty cool. I do enjoy it. Um, so, off the JRPG bandwagon for a second. I might come back to it later. I'm not sure yet. Um, this one be uh, talking a little too much JRPG? Nah. Like, that was what? Five minutes of JRPG? That's not too bad. Um, there's another game that I've been talking to you about that you um, have almost got me over the edge of the fence of actually jumping back in and try- giving you another shot. Um, that's Bloodborne. Mm-hmm. Bloodborne is probably my all-time favorite game that I've played. Really? Okay. So, back to that timeline question about how many hours would you guess that you put into Bloodborne? I don't have a solid number, but I know back in high school when I played Bloodborne, so I've been playing it since about 2015, 2016. Okay. Uh, There's one point where I had a character that had over 200 hours in it, and that was just <laughs> one character. <laughs> wow. Granted, a lot of the time might have been just leaving the system idle. I don't know. <laughs> but I've put hundreds of hours into the game, and there are people who put way more time in than I have just grinding for a certain 
things to make your weapons more powerful for PvP, PvE, trying to get up to the new game plus sevens, which if you don't know, in like the Soulsborne games, once you beat the game, you restart with all of your equipment, but the game's more difficult. And every time you beat the game, you go back to the beginning, keeping your stronger equipment. And that's where it goes new game plus one, all the way up to, I think, plus nine or ten. Oh, wow. So it's almost a never-ending conquest type of thing. Yeah, and there are some people who are crazy good at the game that I've noticed, and I'm nowhere near that level. What's your, if, if you had to pick one, what's your favorite element of that game that keeps bringing you back to play more and more of it? Definitely the struggle, and then overcoming that struggle. Would you say that the struggle is real? Only slightly. <laughs> I had to. So it sounds like John has his own personal experiences with Bloodborne. With, uh, with Soulsy games in general, uh, mostly Bloodborne, but uh, they're they're really interesting in like like you have to time your attacks mm-hmm. in these games. Perfect. <laughs> you have to dodge perfectly, and. For me, that was always like fun and interesting in the beginning of those games, and I'd, I'd probably play like 10, 20 hours, get halfway through the game, and then I just I, I would get to like one boss that I just couldn't beat, and I'd be like, I'm done. I'd throw my controller. <laughs> done. I wouldn't play the game for like a month, maybe two, and then I'd go back into it and I'd, I'd beat the boss, and then I'd get to the next one and I couldn't beat it. I'm done! I'm done! <laughs> Leave it for another month, come back, beat that one. I still have yet to play Bloodborne all the way through, but I've gotten close several times. You've probably made it further than I have. Because as I was talking to Steven about, like, there was a certain point where I got to where you, like, what you're talking about, I couldn't get it past the boss, and finally, like, okay, I'm done. I never took that next step of coming back a month later. Mm-hmm. I just, I was done. And I definitely have had that happen. Just recently, I picked up the game again after the first boss of the DLC. I don't know why I always struggle with this one boss, but after about five more attempts after picking it up after months, I finally beat it. Threw the controller down the couch, like, all right, calm down. All right, let's keep going. <laughs> yep. Um, so, like, the Souls-like games are a relatively new exper- experiment in the gaming world, where, you know, there's been hard games in the past, oh, and yeah. especially, like, if you get into retro games, there's a mm-hmm. lot of difficult games in the retro genre. But I think... When you start getting to the Souls, the Bloodborne, and even Sekiro, which is the same studio, right? Yeah, it's from FromSoft. Right? Yeah. Um, those games are designed to be difficult. Oh, yes. Um, and punishing difficult at that. But the distinction is they're fair. Yeah, yeah. That's, cause that is a crucial difference between some games. And some games are straight up, like, they'll kill you and you don't know why. Well, but yeah. Randomness like, comes big into it. I've played a lot of games that are difficult because of poor development or mm-hmm. poor design. And other games are difficult, but not to the punishing levels of Souls, where Souls is designed and uh, created to be difficult in a way, like you said, is fair. Um, yeah, it's it's a rough, 
Yeah. Like, embark into the world of either the Souls, Bloodborne, or Sekiro. Because I did play Sekiro for quite a bit. Another one of those where I kept dying to, I think, the Ogre boss. And <laughs> I gave up, moved on to other things, and I never quite made it back. But Sekiro is another one that was just a beautiful game that yeah. I wish I would have put more time into. Yeah, I never got into Sekiro, but I did get into Ghost of Tsushima. Okay. Which is another in that style third-person action RPG. Yeah. And I really did like that game. Alright. Yeah, the... the Dark Souls games are extra punishy. Mm-hmm. Like, like if you don't do something proper, you're gonna get punished for it. Uh, my first ever experience with Dark Souls ever was Dark Souls Two, mm. and I don't know if you've played Dark Souls Two. I've played a bit, but I haven't beaten it. But I played through a good chunk of it. So, did did you play it on PC or on no, a console? I played the remaster of it on the PS4. So, so I didn't play the original version. Do, of it. do you remember the first time you died in the game? You get an achievement. Yeah, you get an achievement called "Welcome to Dark Souls." <laughs> and if you don't know, on the Xbox 360 or whatever, if you get an achievement in the game, you cannot remove it from your profile. So once you die in Dark Souls, it's there for everyone to see. I mean, I'm pretty sure anybody who's played the game has that achievement. Fairly certain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but if you play it get that achievement, and then trade it in, get rid of it, whatever. Can't wipe it off your profile. <laughs> nope. Um, I was, was going to take a train of thought, and then, yeah, that gamer tag thing threw me off for just a little bit. Um, so, talking about some of our earlier, or not earlier, but our more recent memories in gaming, we want, John and I wanted to take it back a little bit and talk about our earliest like memories yes. in gaming, because a lot of times... You know, adults who are gamers have been gamers for almost their entire life, um, which is the case for both of us. I'm sure it's probably the case for you. I've been gaming since literally before I can remember. Yeah. So, like, a week. (laughs) Um, So, let's start with John. What are some of your earliest, most fondest gaming memories? So, the first game I ever played was Paperboy on the Atari. Yes! Oh, it was on, I played on Game Boy, but I did play the game. Yes. I played it on NES, so. <laughs> uh, it was on the Atari, and I can't tell you how I played this game now. Like, I look at the Atari controller now, and I'm just like, how did this thing work? Because <laughs> it was the big block with yep. the, like, the, the funky-looking paddle that came out of the system. Yep. And it was me and my best friend. Uh, he got an Atari for Christmas, and we were, like, five years old, I think. And it's like, Glory, I got this. We got to play it. So we went over, and he got Atari. He got Paperboy. Um like two other games that I can't remember what he got. And we we played Paperboy until like nine o'clock at night. <laughs> His mom came barging in the room. Why are you still awake? Go to bed. <laughs> it was my introduction to gaming and it was amazing. Uh, after that, like... I think my next real game I got into was uh, Excite Bike. Okay, yeah. And that was really fun. I didn't really get into 
like storied games until I got a black and white Game Boy. Mm-hmm. You mean green and black? Yeah. <laughs> the the old non-color Game Boy, the Game Boy, like Game Boy Pocket. You're one up on me. Like the only Game Boy I had until Game Boy Color was the big brick of a Game Boy. Like my my first one was the Game Boy Pocket, and then when I got it, I got uh, the very first Final Fantasy game. Oh, so that wouldn't be the first Final Fantasy game. That's um, Mystic Quest. Yes. Yes. I got that, and then I got the Donkey Kong game. Okay. Yeah. And, And I was like. Why, why is Mario mad at Donkey Kong? <laughs> so I played that, and then I got the Final Fantasy game, and that was my real introduction into storied games. Mm-hmm. So after that, I went to find, having the Pokemon game. I went to uh, Metroid. Okay. And that's where that grew from. Nice. So did you say the Game Boy is the first console you personally owned yourself? Game Boy is the first console I personally owned myself. Sorry. Yes. We say console, it's just a gaming device. I know yep. that Game Boy is a handheld, not a console, but still. Uh, <laughs> I went Game Boy, and then I got a Sega Genesis. Okay, so you were on the Sega side of the console wars. Yeah. <laughs> Favorite game on the Genesis? Revolution X with Aerosmith. Okay, nice. Followed um, closely by, uh, I want to say it was the Battletoads game. Oh, talk about punishing games. Yeah, I, I tried playing that like on an emulator on my phone when I was in high school because I didn't have access to the game when I was a kid. But, dang, that thing was fun. <laughs> but I like punishing games, apparently. Yeah. Um, so, growing up during the console wars period, you were on the Genesis side. I'll talk more when it's my turn, but I was on the Super Nintendo side of things. Um... Were you really aware of the implications between the console wars, or were you just happy to have a Sega? I was not aware at all. Uh, mostly because... So, my best friend at the time, he he got the consoles, I didn't. Mm-hmm. So, like, whenever we wanted to play a game that was on that console, we would just go to each other's house, and we, were, we lived next door to each other. So, it never really dawned on me, like, oh, I could get a Sega... But that means I can't play Mario. Yeah. I could get a Nintendo, but that means I can't play Sonic. That never really occurred to me because I was like, I've got a Sega. If I want to play Sonic, I'll do this. I, if, if I want to play Mario, I'll go to next door and play his. Mm-hmm. There, there were times where we would just go to each other's house and play our systems. And it wasn't really a big thing for us until, like, the Sony... Xbox yeah. started happening. Okay. So if you could backtrack in your mind prior to the Dreamcast, which I'm a big fan of the Dreamcast, I thought it was a great console. Dreamcast was amazing. But it was also the end of Sega. So if you could rewind time and go right before the, the Dreamcast was released without knowing the like what happened with Nintendo, because we all know Nintendo is still a pretty big deal to this okay. day. If you had to pick a winner of the console war between Sega and Nintendo, who would it be? Like, like, if I could pick who won it? Like I said, if you, in your mind, had a distinct winner of who you thought won that console war. I think Sega won it. Really? Yes. Why? 
Sega was so far ahead of Nintendo in my mind because they were starting to develop the laser discs for Genesis. Nintendo was still using the cartridges. Mm-hmm. Genesis, they use these cartridges. Nothing against them. It's amazing what they do. Uh, but back then, they were using the cutting edge laser discs. They were producing the systems that read the laser discs. They were, to me, producing the better games at the time. Interesting. Because I'm on the opposite side. Like, I can acknowledge the power of hardware, and that's something that Nintendo has always perpetually been behind since that age. You know, Nintendo, they were at the front lines of, you know, cutting edge hardware, but then ever since then they've been one step behind these other companies competing with them, but they made up for that, in my mind, in the software department by having the more robust lineup of first-party games. Yeah. I, to this day, like, I was a little unfair <laughs> talking about, you know, to this day, but I think that the Super Nintendo had one of the most just well-rounded library of games of mo- any um, console that I can think of. You know, Without comparing apples and oranges. You know, obviously, you know, the PS4 lineup of games, if you compare directly to the Super Nintendo, like, oh yeah, PS4, and, but that's because they're also current gen, brand new games. Right. You know, lots There's... better hardware. Right. Where with Nintendo, what they had to work with at the time, they put out some banger games. Oh, they did. And did nothing against Nintendo at all. Uh, they did amazing work. For me, though, Back then, it was, I say again, they were they were making disc games, which disc games allowed for more, more content on the games. Yeah. Um, like, Nintendo didn't start using discs until the GameCube. Correct. Although there was the, the Nintendo PlayStation that was a prototype for a well, while. Yeah. Released in Japan, there was also the Nintendo 64 DD, or the Nintendo 64 with the disc drive. Yep. Oh. And there was also a Super Nintendo um, add-on box that connected to the internet over Japan. Really? They could stream for the Super Nintendo. Yeah. I, I knew they had that for the sixty-four, but I didn't know. For the Look Super up Nintendo. Legend of Zelda BS. Like you think, <laughs> like it's not actually what it's like. What you think it stands for is not what it stands for, but it was a legitimate like Zelda game that was in similar style, probably the exact same graphics as Link to the Past. But what they did was they were toying around with like a broadcast system with that internet add-on device. So, like, it was every week at, like, Friday at 5 o'clock, or I don't know if that's the exact time, but it was a set schedule. You would tune into that time to get your hour's worth of Zelda game that you can go explore and do something, and your save would cross over from week to week to week. It was a very <laughs> experimental thing, and it died. That's why it never came stateside, but it was a thing over there. Interesting. Anyway, that was a big change. I got off topic a little bit there. Um, Speaking of early gaming memories, what are some of yours, Stevens? So, I actually grew up gaming in the early 2000s. So, well, I should say my parents, they were gamers growing up. So, in the house, we had uh, GameCube, uh, NES, and then we also had the PlayStation 2. So, I had a vast variety of uh, times of games when I was growing up. So, I'd be switching from, like, uh, Super Mario Brothers and Super Mario Brothers three on the NES over to Smash and then some random racing game on the GameCube. <laughs> or sorry, not GameCube on the Nintendo sixty four. Actually, never had Smash on the GameCube, which is 
Please don't tell me you're referring to Mario Kart 64 at some random racing game. No, it was okay. It was some good. some <laughs> random racing game made by Rare. Okay. But I just remember me and my dad playing that game together a lot when I was growing up. Not Diddy Kong Racing? We had Diddy Kong okay. Racing. Okay, that's, that's Rare, too. No, but that's not the one I'm talking about. Okay. You're it's like you're actually legit cars going through a stage. Okay, okay. Ooh. But we did have Diddy Kong. I was awful at that, still am. I tried playing it a few months back when I went to my parents' place. And then over on the PlayStation, we just had all kinds of stuff. Just random games we'd pick up at Game Crazy, Hollywood Video. You know, back when those existed. <laughs> but also with my own personal devices that I had, I more had the hand, Nintendo handhelds like uh, Game Boy Color, Game Boy Advance, DS. I played a lot of Pokemon growing up. Didn't know what I was doing. Like you had mentioned last week. All fire team. I, I didn't go that far. What's, what's balancing a team? But, but How I, do you do that? I'm just going to put a, a starter at the front, maybe a legendary in there, and we're going to call it good. I, I distinctly remember Gen 4 Pokemon was like really sparked my love for it because I was the first one I got brand new. Because everything else I had been hand me down for my brother. But I distinctly remember Infernape in the front. Palkia in the back. Everything else was to revive the Infernape and the Palkia. <laughs> and that's how I beat Cynthia. <laughs> like, you're uh, you're uh, uh, throwing a level 40... It was Typhlosion and Ho-Oh. Ho-Oh. It's just to revive the Typhlosion. <laughs> I will say, I did start my journey of Pokemon with Yellow and Crystal. Okay. And then moved on to Ruby. That's a solid two games to start your journey on, though. Yeah, so... so same question you asked me last week. If you had to pick one gen or one specific game to say was your absolute favorite Pokemon game, what would it be? Ruby. Ruby? Because Ruby was... I said uh, Gen 4 was what sparked it. But Ruby laid the groundwork because that was the first one I... That was... I think I had actually like gone in a weird order where I went Ruby, then Yellow, then Crystal. Just because it's what I had access to. Yeah. But uh, even though Gen 4 made that spark, but I really liked Ruby. And I've even gone back and played it as, like, back 2017, I got out my old Game Boy and played it. <laughs> just because knowing what I know now, like, what stats are, that's weird. And, like, status moves, ugh. <laughs> actually like started playing through the game with some actual knowledge under my belt <laughs> so who was uh, who was your first starter for Ruby uh, I think the first time I played through I went with uh, Torchic but no fire nope nope come on nope I will say fire and a lot of generations were my favorite I always liked Trico okay and not even because of Trico or Sceptile I loved Grovile Actually, I kind of have to backtrack a little bit. Almost all fire, or almost all Pokemon games, I'm Firestarter. And Sword and Shield, I actually went with uh, Little Chimp. I, I'm really Grookey. bad at me. With Grookey? Yeah, yeah, I went with Grookey as well. So I, I am the same way. Like I will, I will do my first playthrough every gen with a fire. But I started Sword and Shield with Sobble. Okay. It's like I kind of cheesed it. I started with all three, because my brother and I had Sword and Shield, and we went through <laughs> and just kept resetting his game and got both of us all the starters, just so we could have them. Because we were both trying to fill out our Pokedex as fast as we could, so we, yeah. at least I could start shiny grinding. 
never got the one I wanted, and then I stopped. <laughs> so, beyond um, the Pokemon games, I guess you kind of went through some of your fondest memories, but, like, what were some of your favorite games in that generation that you were playing? So, by generation, that's really loose, because, like I said, I had that time, that probably five to ten year time saying that you were an early gamer. Yeah, so, this is really weird. A lot of people probably don't know this game, but Mort the Chicken on the PlayStation 1 was a game I played a lot. Are you laughing because of the absurdity of the name, or you know the game? I'm laughing because I know the game. Because I actually don't know the game, so yeah, this is so me. a 3D platformer where, like, aliens came down and took all the humans, and you're this chicken trying to save the world. <laughs> it's a PS1 game. Give it a break. <laughs> but it's a game I just always remember, like, going to my grandma's house and playing it on her PS1. And I, I just always had a fondness for that game. And even, I've gone back and watched old gameplay of it, and it's like, it's, it still looks awful, but I love it. <laughs> it looks terrible. See, that's one thing where Nintendo, I think, has a slight leg up where, you know, I think Super Nintendo games have aged better than Genesis. Yeah. I think 64 games have aged better than PS1 games. Um, so... Uh, Sometimes bigger and better isn't always better. Right. Well, you know, PlayStation at the time, you know, the disc graphics were top of the line. Mm-hmm. But as that graphical system started to get updated with the PS2, PS3, PS4, you go back and look at the PS1 like Ugh, a little bit. Where polygons, where the modern this... Nintendo games, and you go back and look at old Nintendo games, and you're just like. It still looks pretty it good. still looks really good. Yeah, there are some games that are, like, a little cringeworthy on Nintendo. I'm not saying it's a blanket statement, but, you know, in the time where 64 really couldn't compete graphically with PS1, now when you look back, I prefer the 64 graphics over PS1 graphics I, in retrospect. And I think that's because the PS1 tried to go for a more realistic look in a lot of the games mm-hmm. I, that I, I've noticed. Yeah. But Nintendo went for a more stylized approach. And if you're going for a stylized approach, you don't need that high-fidelity graphics to look good. You just, you use what you got and you have a solid design as opposed to maxing out your polygon counts. So here's here's my thing I had with the graphical issues between Nintendo and PlayStation. You go back and you look at old Nintendo games, like the greatest Nintendo game of all time, in my opinion, Ocarina of Time. Okay. The whole world for Ocarina of Time looks good. You've got your, your color palettes that match. Your The character you play matches the surrounding world. You go to a PlayStation game like Final Fantasy VII. The character for Final Fantasy VII that you play is real blocky. It's got a really bright color palette, but the world around you has this supposed hyper-realistic that just does not match. Yeah. That for me was like, okay, Nintendo's doing better than Sony in this area. Well, I think it's a trend that Nintendo's kept up with too. Because you go you fast forward to the GameCube. GameCube couldn't compete with the PS2 and Xbox, but it came out with Wind Waker, which is still to this day one of the most gorgeous games they've come yeah, out absolutely. with. Absolutely. And the Switch, you know, obviously cannot compete with the likes of PS4 and Xbox One. But it launches with Breath of the Wild, which is an astoundingly beautiful game, where, like what Stephen was saying, instead of going for hyper-realism, 
they fit the style of their game with with the what's the word I'm looking for with the genre that they're playing with and yeah. with what their system can handle and mm-hmm. I think that's you know Nintendo knows their wheelhouse they know what their limitations are and they know how to maximize those limitations to work in their favor and they've been doing it for the last 25 years right so, um, so interesting stuff with what you were talking about I never really thought about this but there is a unique conversation to be had with two different decades of gamers where when John and I were growing up in the 90s there wasn't this huge backlog of video games to play at least nothing that was of decent quality you know because the vast majority of games on the Atari are pretty crap if you're asking if you ask my honest opinion and before that you give the Atari are garbage yeah <laughs> but it's all you had so might as well play them so like when you had Nintendo coming out like we kind of had to chomp at the bit for something new to play. And then the Super Nintendo and Genesis, while there was more, it was still like, okay, what's the next big thing? What's the next big thing? And that's around the time that E3 started launching because there was more and more people hopping on board of this new video game fad that was happening. But then 10 years later, you enter the scene and you've got a decade and a half worth of backlog of systems and games to try out. Mm-hmm. So I'm just curious on how you think that might affect people differently. Like, so for me, I grew up a gamer. I love video games, but my experience is vastly different than yours to where I had to wait periods of time for new games to play or for new news of games to play. I would read magazines like, oh, that game looks cool. I didn't have hundreds of games to try out out the gate, whereas, like, you, you growing up, you had... A lot of different consoles to try out, a lot of different games to try out to really figure out where your likes and dislikes were as a gamer. Mm-hmm. So how do you think that impacted you as a gamer having a strong backlog of stuff? So having that strong backlog, uh, it definitely come like for example, going to like a GameStop or like I mentioned earlier, our, another local store we have was a game crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely a bit of decision paralysis because we had all those different consoles at home. So not only am I picking, like, what game do I want, like, if I just had money to burn or whatever, but what system do I want to get it for? Just because we had all these generations of game or game consoles, what kind of experience do I want? So that definitely led to a lot of decision paralysis when, like, trying to pick a game. Okay. I can definitely see that. When you've got wall-to-wall games of a dozen different consoles. Or just, like, the bargain bin at Walmart just trying to find something. Yeah, uh, in terms of, like, shaping my preferences, I honestly didn't really, like, find that I really liked these third-person action RPGs until I was in high school. Because that's when I picked up Dark Souls. Hated it. Could not stand it. Did not know what I was doing. Then I picked it back up with a friend of mine who had played the game and knew what they were doing. And he gave me some tips and tricks. And that's what made me fall in love with that genre. Okay. And so, similar question to you, John. um, Because you were same generation as I with gaming. How do you think being forced to live in a world where we don't have that backlog of games, how do you think that probably affected us gamers that grew up in the 90s? I think not having such a backlog backlog of games that were readily available for people like us to play was what really started the curiosity of, okay, I can this game how can I play this game unconventionally 
<laughs> I think that's where a lot of like speedrunner stuff came in mm -hmm. because we can sit here and we can play Super Mario Brothers over and over and over and over again. It's the same game. Okay, how fast can I do this? You can definitely see that. On top of... So we also grew up in the era of gaming magazines. <laughs> Nintendo Power, baby! That was my jam. I, I remember when Game Informer yep. first came out. Uh, was I was uh, really big into GTA at okay. the time. So, like, for me, I would always go out and buy the Game Informer magazines and flip all the way to the back and be like, Where's this week's cheat code? <laughs> cheat codes. One thing you can like definitely be a throwback to old school gaming because they're not really a thing anymore. I think GT5 threw in there mainly as a throwback to the old GTA games. Yeah, they have them a little bit in the single player, but you're not going to find anything in the multiplayer. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, that or uh, the old going back to... Okay, this magazine says that this game is coming out. Yep. Next month, they're having a release date for this game in the next issue. I gotta wait a month to get that magazine to be like, okay, now I gotta wait three months for the game to come out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, snails pay, like, in relation or in, uh, I can't talk today. <laughs> Comparing it to today's method of our consumption of news, where Something happens and it's on YouTube and everybody knows about it. Like by right. the end of the day, mm -hmm. where back then it was, oh, did you read about that new game coming out in the magazine? Yeah, they're gonna reveal the release date like in the next magazine. Type right. Thing. And now, now we have like Nintendo does the directs, yep. and nine times out of ten, there's something on that Nintendo direct where they go releasing later today. Yep. <laughs> That did that did not happen back then. Not at all. You you did not pick up a magazine and be like, Oh, today. oh it's coming out today. <laughs> you pick up a magazine and you go, Oh, it's coming out in three months. Yep. Alright, that went that segment went a little long. Didn't get a chance to talk about mine. I'll try to go real fast. My early childhood memories. Um my dad had a Nintendo when like as early as I can remember. He used to play that a lot, and then when I got old enough, I'd play the Mario games with him, namely. And then, um, eventually, somewhere in my childhood, he got Super Nintendo. Again, his. It wasn't mine, but I still got to play Super Mario World. And I think that's where I really came into an awareness of how special video games were. Um, and I adored Super Mario World. I like, have strong, fond memories of playing that game with my dad um, a lot. And then, it was between the Super Nintendo and the 64 that my dad eventually kind of lost interest in video gaming so i inherited his nintendo his super nintendo and then i got a game boy and i think when i was five i really wanted nintendo 64 so like the entire year like i showed like hey my dad like show my dad hey this is coming out i want this i want this i want this i got it for christmas and super mario 64 is probably in my childhood years probably the game i put the most amount of time into because so that's to, the only 64 game I had for an entire year. I have to ask you the ultimate question, though. What's up? Do you throw the penguin off? Oh, yeah. Who doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't? 
Like, I, that's just something everyone has come to the decision to do, but never was like influenced by anyone else. Because <laughs> I did that when I was a kid with the Nintendo 64. My son. He was playing the 3D All-Stars game, and he <laughs> took little penguin. Hey, Dad, look! There it goes. <laughs> and this just shows us that children are monsters. Oh, <laughs> uh, I, I lied. I did have a second game that first year. It was Pilot Wings. So you can probably see why I put so much time in it. Like, and I eventually grew to love Pilot Wings, but when I was five years old, I didn't want anything to do with Pilot Wings. Right. Mario. Weren't those the two launch titles for the 64? Yep, that's, that's what it was. But I, too, have a lot of early childhood memories of going to our local Best Buy or Family Video. And actually, there's an old one. Did you grow up in this area, John? Yep. Do you remember Adventureland? Yep. The video game store down? Huh? Yep. That was my old stopping ground. My dad uh, was friends with the owner. And so really? he would go and check out video games, I think, for cheap or free. Um, so the two games, I kept going back and forth between back on Super Nintendo were Lion King and Donkey Kong. And fun little fact, between the whole Sega and the Super Nintendo thing, I never had a Sega. I didn't have a friend with a Sega. I eventually did come to own a Sega years later. But at the time, I played you know a lot of the Super Nintendo games, and that included Super Nintendo Flat. Blew my mind one day when I, you know years later, had a Sega, was playing the Latin game. Like, this is not the game I remember. Right. <laughs> Two vastly different games that came out at the same time. Trip my mind out. Um... Yeah, I really enjoyed talking a lot of these early uh, childhood memories. Definitely a throwback. I'm one of those guys that still to this day will go back and play those old games out of nostalgia. Um, I, in terms of opinion pieces, I try not to let my nostalgia guide my uh, opinions too far, one way or the other. Um, talking about Breath of Wild a little bit, um, I saw some negative pieces where people were claiming that nostalgia bought the rave reviews that that game got, and I don't agree whatsoever. I didn't love the game because I have heavy nostalgia for Zelda. I love the game because of the new things that they did, the new style of a world that they created. Because I loved it because it was a fully open world Zelda game. Oh yeah, prior to that you didn't have freedom to move or climb or go anywhere that you wanted in a lot of titles. So they definitely pushed the envelope and tried new things, and I think to say that nostalgia, well, that score is unfair, but anyway, that's just a little bit about me. Um, I did have a few things I want to talk about before we close out the show in a little bit. Um, Got my notes here, sorry. I'm so professional. (laughs) Um, Fast forwarding to now, the current gaming landscape. I know John and I hit a little bit of it last week with um, our talk on how we we felt indie games were one of the better things that happened in the game industry last week. Do you have any things to add or your own opinions on that? Because I'm pretty sure you listened to last week's episode. Uh, just talking about like how indie games have affected things? Yes. Yeah, definitely. I know said so we wouldn't bring it up more, but Hollow Knight's one of my recent plays. And I, I love it, and it really changed what I viewed an indie game could be. Because I, I hear indie game, I think of just like, some small game that you get for a few bucks on Steam or just given away in a Humble Bundle pack. But playing through Hollow Knight, that really changed my perspective on what it could be and then just what the... and what Words are hard, you know? <laughs> You're talking about like the quality of game that can come out of small indie studios? Yeah, Absolutely. precisely. Um, and then... 
yeah, can't think of anything else about what we talked about last week, but we do have a few things to talk about this week. Um, Next-gen gaming. You know, we have E3 coming up. We talked a little bit about what we hope for that, but instead of limiting ourselves to E3, let's talk a little bit about what we might expect from this generation of gaming as a whole. Because that's, we've got the next five or six years of gaming development that's going to happen for this current gen. Mm-hmm. I say next gen, we're, we're in it now. The PS5 and the Xbox Series X have launched, so we are in... They are now the current gen of games. Yeah. So, what are some things that you guys think might happen with this current gen that we're in now, or things that you hope to see with this current gen? Uh, one of the things I really want to see is an improvement in VR. Okay. Like, I, I love the VR that we have now, but I'm looking forward to, like, full, like, RPG games where you get to play as a character in first person. Okay. I think that would be amazing. Do you think they'll ever get past the motion sickness issue? They have ways around it. Like, (coughs) one common complaint I've seen with the motion sickness issue is your character moving with head bobbing and stuff while you're sitting in place. Uh, One thing that Skyrim VR did, for example, when you're in the first person mode, is using a point and teleport system. Because mm-hmm. that's a way they've managed to handle the motion sickness. Uh, another version of it, when you're in like a, a moving vehicle, uh, the roller coasters kind of demo app, or free app that's on the Oculus Quest, they have a thing that basically puts your head in like a little cage or a little helmet. It basically gives your your mind a way to ground yourself mm-hmm. while you're going through that roller coaster, even if you're just sitting in I know they have ways of kind of mitigating it. I'm not sure if there's a way of getting around it 100% because motion sickness is different from person to person. Yeah, so for me, I'm in that same vein where anytime that there's movement that is not prompted by my body, it prompts that motion sickness. Like, I tried Skyrim VR without the pointless teleport, and it was jarring. You know, like, games like Beat Saber, I'm perfectly fine, but that's my body doing everything in the game. And same thing with Super Hot. Um, I've seen some cool things. Um, I don't know how applicable they might be to like household use, but one of them I saw that I think would actually do the trick is like this little treadmill thing, omni yeah. omnidirectional omni treadmill that yes. has like straps around your back. Yeah, I have yeah. seen that. Where your movement on that would then prompt your movement in the game, and I think that would bypass motion for a lot of people who have that. Mm-hmm. You know, anytime your visuals move without your body moving, like that's what triggers it for me. So, speaking of that, you know the movie Ready Player One? Yeah. So I know the book more, because I enjoyed the book more, but yes, we'll, we'll, we'll go forward with this. Uh, so, like, the omni-treadmill that they use in that movie, in the movie yeah. would work. Yeah. Like I said, I just don't know how applicable it would be in the near future for home use. Especially the cost of it, because I've seen them, they're not yeah. super big most of the time. Like, they can just sit in the corner of a room. But, but the same hardware time, for them. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, what are some things that you might hope to see out of this current gen that we're in? So, uh, I don't know about things that I'm hoping to see, but something that has come to mind is the shift from the like Xbox 360 to Xbox One. That was a pretty big gap in graphic quality mm-hmm. and I agree. Uh, power. I don't think that gap is as big between the One and PS4 and then the PS5 and the Series X. So, 
we might not have to wait as long to have like new big expansive titles for those systems. That's because, the hope, you know, because it's not going to be such a different development cycle. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that I'm hoping for is speed of development from people who are used to developing from the older systems. In a similar vein, do you think that this could potentially be the last generation of console as we know it? Uh, there's always room to improve on them, and they're always going to find more ways with more technological advancements. So I don't think that. But I do think we'll be sitting on the 5 and the Series X for quite a few years. Oh, yeah. Yeah, historically, console cycles are generally 5 to 6 years, mm-hmm. unless you're the Wii U. <coughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> um, no, I just... I've read a lot of articles talking about how as that graphical gap starts to lessen with each new generation of console, and you're right, it, you can visibly see it. From PS1 to PS2 was a huge jump, mm-hmm. but then it was slightly less from the PS2 to PS3. I think they kind of upped it a bit from PS3 to PS4, but that was also the introduction of you know 4K gaming. It was also the introduction of like streaming games, and the introduction of like playing online hardcore. And... Mm-hmm. But be- beyond that, we're now back to that shrinking graphical gap between consoles, and some people are saying that we might end up seeing a route where you see iterative hardware like upgrades as opposed to full blown new consoles. So like instead of you know the Series X two, whatever that might look like, mm-hmm. it would be, you know, an upgraded version of the Series X that can both consoles can play the same games and with that iterative it starts to turn into like a PC. You know, certain, I can see where you're coming from with that. And that's where I was saying like if it keeps going that route, it just makes more sense to have iterative hardware as opposed to full blown launching new con Consoles. Right, so you could have like, like a PS Five. Dot dot whatever they're gonna call it. Yeah. Like a part two that is essentially the same graphical system, but it's got like an upgraded hard drive and stuff like that. Yeah. And in a similar vein to that, like they did with, uh, going back to the Xbox Three Hundred and Sixty, you had the Xbox Three Hundred and Sixty Arcade that came out first, then you had the Three Hundred and Sixty Pro, and then later on you had the Three Hundred and Sixty S, which mm-hmm. was a complete like overhaul of the system but still played all the core games but it left out a lot of the problems that the previous iterations had so I could definitely see the Series X and the 5 going that route well that and they're laying the foundation for it right now with backwards compatibility for just about everything mm-hmm. um, it used to be you know when you got the Xbox 360 you really couldn't play Xbox games on that you had to have play on different consoles mm-hmm. Xbox One, they started to introduce backwards compatibility, and through the years of that console's life cycle, they started adding more and more backwards compatibility. Now, we've got Xbox Series X that is full backwards compatibility, I think with 99% of Xbox One games, if not all of them. Did not know that. Yes. As well as any game, essentially, I think their pitch was any game that you can play on Xbox One, you can play on the Series X. Hmm. And having that full backwards compatibility going forward is the foundation you would need to launch an iterative hardware upgrade system as opposed to new consoles. So do you remember when the PS3 first came out? Like, they sold PS3 systems that would read PlayStation 1 and PlayStation 2 games? Mm-hmm. It was the only and system then, that would do that. And then after, I think it was like three or six months, they stopped selling those ones mm-hmm. and then only sold systems that would read the PS3 and PS1 games. And then there was like something in the PlayStation store that you could pay 20 bucks for 
that would then read the PlayStation 2 games? I thought it was a little bit different. I thought that the first round of PlayStation 3s were the only ones that had actual compatibility. And then after that first round of game, like consoles, like especially with the PS3 Slims, there was no backwards compatibility on right. whatsoever. You might be right. I, I definitely know like the first like three or six months, there were the PlayStation 3s that read the PlayStation 2 and 1 games. And yeah. then after that, they came out with the... Not the PS3 Slims. Yeah, was, but, but there was one that read like PS3 and PS1 games. Version 1.5. Yeah. To give it yeah. a placeholder. And then the, the PlayStation Slim only read PS3 games. Yep. So. Yeah, I think it's a healthy turn of, like, even if we don't see it or hardware, just making each new console backwards compatible so that um, you can play your backlog. Backlog library of games. Because that's one of the hardest things with new consoles is lack of launch titles. Mm -hmm. But for me, I've got a massive Xbox library from back to the 360, not with the One, and if Series X has ever become available, I'm much more prone to go in and get one, knowing that my entire library of digital games that I own can right. be downloaded on my new console yeah, right away. Right, especially with like what you just mentioned, the library of digital games yeah. being able to be played on the new systems. Because that's where a lot of the games are being at now. No one's really buying a lot of the physical copies of games much anymore. Don't remind me. It makes me sad. <laughs> it makes me sad, too. I also am a part of that, though. Oh, yeah. Like, it's just it's too easy. Like, it's like, I don't have to get off the couch to buy exactly. a new game. Exactly. It's like, what, what can go wrong? There's been multiple times where I like I got bored with the game. So I just hopped over to the eShop on my Switch and started flipping through. Like, oh, that looks fun. I'll download it. I, just, I didn't have to move. I didn't have to go to a store. Right. And then there's a lot of more, like, digital deluxe versions of games coming out now. Yep. So, like, oh, if you buy this digital deluxe version, you get these extras for the game. And let's be completely honest. I don't get those when I go buy the physical copy. Well, and let's be completely honest, too. Owning the physical game, it's mainly nostalgia for a lot of people. But when you look at the actual numbers, the people that benefit the most from digital titles are the developers of the games. Exactly. So, like, while, yeah, my nostalgia is kicking and streaming on the inside, I can pallet it knowing that, you know, more money's going to go to the developer because they don't have to pay production costs for the disc or cartridge, whatever it might be, the casing, they don't the production. Have to pay Sony to sell their game. Yeah. They don't have to pay the game store that's going to sell their game when they sell the game. You know, they mm -hmm. get more of the product from the game itself yep. to them, which is, I think, is great. Yeah. Because the more the more they make off of their games, the more games they're going to be able to make. Yeah. Yep. Um, gotta get my notes back out. Sorry. I'm so professional. Um, speaking of the current-gen gaming, um, Switch Pro Rumors. You think there's some truth behind it, or you think it's all a farce? I could honestly see it going either way. Yeah. So, go ahead. I was gonna say, to be completely honest, I think there has to be some truth behind it, mainly because the Switch, as it stands, has no way of gaming 4K. So, having an upgraded system, what that doesn't alienate the library that the Switch has, like all the libraries should be able to be played on Switch Pro. If they do anything but that, I think they're losing. Oh, yeah. But um, as long as they don't alienate the current library that they have, but give it the boost it needs to make that jump to 4K, 
I think, in order to at least compete on some playing field. Not the level paying playing field. They're never going to be on the same level as PS5 and Xbox Series X, but to be somewhere close to that playing field, they need to have that upgrade to 4K. Um, as well as... Um, what, was I, where was I going with this? Uh, bet, like Just quality of life upgrades. Battery life, the screen oh, yeah. that's built into the Switch. So I think the move makes sense, especially aligning it with so close to the launch of new consoles. Yeah. So... Like I said, it could go both ways. This is Nintendo we're talking about. They, they are more times than not way out in left field. Sometimes it works for them, sometimes it doesn't. But I could definitely see this one panning out to be true. What were your thoughts on it? I I really want this one to be true. Yeah? I do. Uh, how long has the Switch been out? Three and a half, four years? Something like that. Yeah. I think 17 is when it came out. I think so, yeah. I think so. And like you said, everything is in 4K. So that upgrade alone would be amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really want improvements in the Joy-Cons. Oh, gosh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> they are truly terrible. Like, so the, the concept of Joy-Con, and when they work, they work great. Oh, yeah. But when the little joysticks stop working, they get that stick drift. They're terrible. To the point where you just want to chuck that thing across the room and say sayonara. I got to a point where <laughs> I just use a separate controller. I just don't even mess with the Joy-Cons anymore. Yeah. So I have a <coughs> Switch Lite. Mm-hmm. So I can't even take my joysticks off. But does, the, does the Lite have that problem as well? No. No. Okay. At least not that I've had. I haven't, I, I haven't had any issues with my Switch Lite. But on... The regular switch, I have seen so many issues with stick drift. Mm-hmm. The stick just not being responsive. Mm-hmm. I've seen D-pad buttons getting stuck. Yep. I I really want just a general overhaul of the Joy Cons. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I can definitely see that. One thing, it's just a rumor at this point. I talked a little bit about it last week. Um, Phil Spencer, in one of his um, press conferences, had a switch in the background. Yep. Just found out that the video that they sent out, like promoting their um, project development, like their software development team, that went out to people who are interested in developing software for the Xbox Series X, had the Nintendo Switch right next to the Series X. Like in the UI of the program? No, like it was like, like, like the woman was sitting there talking about their development package and everything. And behind her, there's a Series X and a Switch oh, right okay. next to it. Uh, so, uh, so that could that could mean some stuff. It was not an accident, especially now that we have two videos in a row coming from the Xbox team <laughs> with a Switch in there. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely something cooking, if you ask me. Um, I've been saying it for about a year that I think some format of Xbox gaming is coming to the Switch, whether it be Xbox Live, Game Pass, or xCloud. They're, I was reading an article and watching a video. Somebody thinks that if it's going to happen, they're going to announce at E3 alongside the Switch Pro and essentially make it so that the xCloud or Game Pass, whatever it is, is locked into Switch Pro, which will help sell the system. Which, if you can play Xbox games on your Switch, it's going to sell systems. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Because at that point, you're pretty much getting two systems in one. Yes. And with the Switch being a portable system, having a portable Xbox... Just 
game changing at that point. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, with so with those rumors in mind, or with the potential in mind, how do you think that changes the landscape of this generation of consoles? I think that if we get Xbox in any fashion on our Switch, it is going to change everything. Because that is a major collaboration between two of the biggest gaming industries. Mm -hmm. And it opens the door for so much. Walking down the street with your Switch playing Halo. Who doesn't want to do that? Mm-hmm. There is such a big possibility happening there. Like, anything would be possible after that. Yeah. You know? How do you think it might affect Sony moving forward? If it were to happen. Like, we're just playing if, if scenarios right now. But My biggest hope, and this is going to come out of left field, my biggest hope is that if this happens, it makes Sony get back into the handheld business. Okay. Oh, yeah. I didn't even see that one coming, but yeah. Because I was a big fan of the PSP and Vita. I actually did like those. Like, I never had a Vita. I had a PSP. But I always loved the concept of the Vita. Mm-hmm. I just never had the means to get one. But some of my friends had them, and I played it once or twice, and I really did like the system. Yeah. So here's the thing, though. Like, Back in the 90s, with the original console wars, Sega and Nintendo, a lot of that came to be because families at the time were one-console families. Yep. If you had a Super Nintendo, that's the only console you had. Or maybe you had an original NES, but it wasn't... like you, Your family didn't have the money to go out and get both of them unless you were one of the wealthy families. Right. That's not so much the case anymore, where it's not uncommon for households to have two consoles. And... With the Switch being really hot right now, a lot of times it's either Xbox or PlayStation and a Switch mm-hmm. if they're going to have two consoles. And I think with Xbox's collaboration with Nintendo, they're trying to push more people to it being Xbox Switch instead of PlayStation Switch. Um, and then what they could do is they could just be like, all right, we've got like two kids. We'll get an Xbox for the living room. Yep. We'll get the kids each a Switch. Everybody can play at the same time. Yep. All of you can play Xbox games at the same time. Especially if they introduce Game Pass or xCloud where, yeah, that cross-platform, exactly. cross-genre right. stuff. Mm-hmm. I know you were bringing up, like, blocking it to the pro, but I could also see them, like, the lower-scale games being, like, a, a playable on the regular Switch or even the Switch Lite, which opens up to what you were saying, get the two kids a mm-hmm. Switch Lite and Xbox for the main room. Everyone's happy. If it so happens that xCloud is the thing coming to the Switch, I can like, I don't see any reason not to throw out the light because, again, the hardware is not running the games. It's streaming the games. Exactly. If it is Game Pass where you actually have to physically download the game, I think it almost has to be a pro at that point because I'm not sure how many of the games on the Game Pass, aside from maybe the lower-scaled ones, would run on current-gen or current hardware switches. Um, but yeah, um, I, I would definitely expect some news coming out in the next few months of some collaboration. I'm not saying it's going to be Game Pass or Excel, but I think there's going to be something going on between Nintendo and Microsoft down the pipeline in the near future. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so that about wraps us up. 
luckily, yeah, we went a little over. We're at about an hour and ten minutes. <laughs> luckily, um, I should say luckily, hopefully we get some people here in the next few weeks to ask us some questions. There's nobody in Discord. There was uh, Thorn listening for a while there, but I think he either got bored or had something else to do. That's a, not a problem. <laughs> and it is getting late. So yeah, it is getting late. But I uh, definitely want to throw out a big thank you to Stephen for joining us Absolutely. tonight. Um, oh, gave yeah. us some great talking points. Hopefully you guys had a very entertaining episode. Yeah, I had a great time doing this podcast. Absolutely. You think you'd be back for more sometime? Oh, yeah, I'd love to. Awesome. Any final thoughts before we sign off? Yeah, I just want to say thank you guys for listening. I had a great time. I hope you, had, I hope you guys had a great time listening or watching as well. All right, sounds good. Any final thoughts, John? Uh, not much. Uh you guys let us know what you guys are excited about E3. Uh, tell us some predictions you got. Yeah. Throw in the comments below. Yeah, exactly. Um, so regardless of the platform you're on, there's multiple ways of getting through us. You can comment on YouTube if you're watching there. Um, we do have a store Discord that I have a specific uh, channel set aside for bite-sized gaming. So if you have any questions there, you can go to our Discord and pop them there. Or if you just have any remarks, you want to talk to John and I, we're both in that Discord as well. Absolutely. Um, and we are, like I said earlier, on most major podcast platforms. There's not a good way for me to link Discord or anything on there. Um, but um, I will try to make sure I get a Discord link up on our YouTube page this week when I upload this video. All right. All right. So with that being said, thank you guys for coming on. I'm Mike, and this is John, and we'll see you guys next week.